Welcome to Enough Room, a music learning project with Symphony Nova Scotia, supported by TD Bank Group. Hi, and welcome to Enough Room, a Symphony Nova Scotia project about expanding our musical horizons, in which Daniel Bartholomew Poyser and myself will be discussing all sorts of issues about programming and personnel and what we can be doing in the arts in this time in the world. And today's guest is Raisa Lalani, who's Artistic Director of Prismatic Arts Festival. Hi, Raisa. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you ended up working for Prismatic and what your background is as as a performer or an artist? Absolutely. Um, So I'm actually from Wichipsa Oyed, Calgary, from Treaty 7 of Blackfoot Territory. And I moved out to Jebectek here in Mi'kma'ki, Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, for university. And I came here uh, to pursue the arts, to do the acting program at Dalhousie University. And I was also on a volleyball scholarship, so a nice blend of athletics and arts. And I ended up deciding to kind of change my course of action to study journalism um, instead because I was really interested in kind of, you know, the broadcast world and telling people's stories, uh, telling the truth and the facts um, and the realness of people's stories. And so I started doing that. um, And then I kind of found myself called back to the arts. I mean, I've been singing and playing the piano and dancing since I could speak, walk, been on stages my whole life. and, And I found that my professional life and my artistic desire to get back to that life kind of came full circle and came together, which is really exciting. So I started with the Prismatic Arts Festival um, in 2016, doing their marketing and communications, uh, and then moved on to be the producer, and now I'm the newest artistic director. That's quite amazing to move up an organization like that. Like often artistic directors are outside appointments so that it's fresh ideas or, you know, but to to move upwards to that position is really amazing. Do you feel that having come through the organization is helpful to you in your position? Absolutely. I think it kind of, it really makes who I am and what my intentions are with the position. Just learning the, learning the industry, learning um, the organization's values and mandates, which I hold close to my own heart as well. And then being able to be put into a position where I I can make a difference, um, which I think is really special. So I think having, you know, two incredible mentors in Shaheen Siadi Maggie. Stewart, our executive director and managing director, um, and seeing and understanding and learning, and I will tell that story too, um, about how Prismatic came to be, um, what were, you know, what were the battles, what were the the strife that people had to go through that Indigenous artists and artists of color have gone through to even have a need for a platform like Prismatic. I think just being inside that organization and meeting artists and meeting people, stakeholders within the industry through the organization has really kind of given me a lot of thought and a lot of clarity of what I need to do to move forward. That's so interesting that it it's not just that you, you inform the process of the organization, but that the organization and your place in it informs your personal professional development as well. Is Absolutely. Kind of, we don't think about that often when, especially at the beginning of your career, when you're going for jobs, you're just so blimmin' grateful to be hired <laughs> sometimes, but often Absolutely, it is amazing to sit and sure. think, no, is this going to help me grow in, in a, and not just in an ambition kind of sense, but in a, as you say, a value-driven sense or an ethical yeah. sense. Um, yeah, I think it, it's lucky that 
I think, you know, I'm lucky that I'm in a position where my job is something that betters me every day, that excites me every day. You know, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to say that. And I mean, especially now within this COVID-19 pandemic, it's, you know, everyone's just fighting to get by and what life was as we knew it is completely turned upside down. Our art sector as a whole has been completely turned upside down. So I just count my blessings every day that, you know, I get to do something that I love and that keeps keeps me going and I get to keep it going. <laughs> so there's one little thing I want to to sort of highlight for our audience who are listening in case they're unaware. Mm-hmm. The prismatic, you, you kind of referred to it briefly, but prismatic does work specifically to be a platform for the art and artists of the Indigenous community and the Black community. Is that correct? And for people of colour? Yeah, so Prismatic is, so we're a multidisciplinary um, annual festival that solely showcases the work of Indigenous artists and artists of colour from across Canada. We have also programmed Indigenous artists and artists of colour from beyond, from, you know, we have had international either presenters or artists on our stage. But right now, in the past year or so, our focus has really come back to the Canadian artists and to make sure that we're providing a stage for Indigenous artists and artists of colour from Canada. Um, which, actually, maybe maybe I'll tell my story, if you don't mind. Do. I'll use Please that do. as a segue, which is great. Uh, it's not my story. It's a prismatic story. Um, but I consider it to be, you know, a part of my story now, too. Uh, so the Prismatic Arts Festival actually started in 2008, um, and we'll even go before that a little bit. Uh, so our executive director, Shaheen Siadi, um, he came to Dalhousie University, went through the Fountain School of Performing Arts, um, and was looking to build a career in the arts here in Halifax. And there was just such a, to be blunt about it, such a lack of opportunity for an artist of color, an artist of color with an accent, to be programmed. Or to even, you know, work as a director or a producer or to be a tech. And of course, you know, he wanted to act and that was what his passion was. And there was no place for him to do it. And because of that recognition of that need and the necessity of, well, you know, I want to make it in this sector, what am I going to do? So he actually worked at a grocery store and owned a grocery store and started a theater company out of the back of a grocery store. And that was One Light Theater. And it was called One Light Theater uh, because there was just one light in the back of the grocery store in the theater that kind of shaped, you know, and and gave him a platform to start writing his work and creating. And through that, you know, he recognized that he was able to, um, with a lot of determination and grit, if you ever get the chance to meet him, you'll see, that it wasn't just for him that it was important to do. Now it was really important to do that for the, the whole sector, for Indigenous artists and artists of color in Canada as a whole. And so the Prismatic Arts Festival kind of was an idea that came out of One Light Theatre, and One Light Theatre actually produced it. Um, it was just a two-hour program at Neptune Theatre in downtown Halifax. And from there, it grew so immensely. It picked up because audiences were interested in learning about new you know, art forms, um, about new information that's disseminated through the art, but also artists of color started hearing about this festival on the east coast of Canada that presents work by them, um, which is, you know, it was unheard of even 10, 15 years ago. It still is a struggle to this day. So that's kind of the story of how Prismatic came to be. And, and you know, it, it is curated to solely showcase Indigenous artists and arts of color. But even 
in that, um, you know, we do prioritize the works of artists who identify um, in communities that are un underrepresented in Canadian professional arts, which include women, uh, members of the LGBTQIA2S plus community, uh, disability identified artists, all under that umbrella of Indigenous artists and artists of colour. So that's kind of the overview of how Prismatic came to be and, and what we do. That is amazing. And that's so wonderfully kind of Berlin art house to have the one light theater out the back of a grocery yes, store. I, know. <laughs> I wish I could have seen it. I've just been, I always hear the stories and I look at the pictures and I was like, oh, I wish I was born like 20 years ago because I could have seen what it was all about, which is incredible. I think there's an argument for, for reinstating the one light theater and actually running a little I series. Like that. It's, it's on so record. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on record. We have to make it happen. That's I mean, one light cool. theater still is a company that does exist to this day, okay. just not where it is in, this, in the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> So I have so many questions for you mm -hmm. coming out of all of that because to the people watching, I didn't know any of that. I'm discovering this at the same time as everyone <laughs> who's watching, which is really cool. So first of all, I want to talk about this thing of the time we're in at the moment because we can't not talk about COVID, number one, and the pandemic and the lockdown, but also the other massive event that's happened to impact all of us globally in the same way has been the Black Lives Matter movement this year, which has been just the most amazing explosion of energy and mission uh, about going no enough is enough you know being polite about this hasn't worked um and it feels like such a it's just like a fire hose has gone on <laughs> on the world it's just been amazing so i you were mentioning that prismatic also represents other underrepresented groups um such as people with disabilities and in the uk i've I'm a, a director on the board of a, an opera company that is specifically for and about and starts from the germ of accessibility for people with um, disabilities to be on stage, to be in the audience, etc. And one thing we've talked about, and it's become clear to us, is that actually the, the disabled community have sort of, in many ways, reveled in, in this time artistically because they're like, well, we've been using these aids <laughs> All the time, we, we just called them, you know, Zoom was all these online meetings, all of these sort of technology things that we're having to rely on at the moment. We've been using them for years and being told that it meant we weren't, it, was a, it wasn't the right kind of access. Now the whole world needs it, all of a sudden it's mainstream. Do you think there's a, a sense of that also for, say, people of colour and Indigenous community who already have faced barriers of access and direct connection to audience that actually this kind of levels the playing field in some ways of well there's a, a wealth of experience already in this creative community to to equip them to deal with this perhaps a little more speedily and fleetly than the mainstream community I mean that's a yeah that's an interesting kind of perspective I guess because I mean, that, that is, for example, like the Black Lives Matter um, movement that you're talking about, you know, that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been trying to do for 10, 15 years. That's what artists of color have been asking for, for all of time. So I think the fact now that it's being more public, and I think that, you know, it is a correlation to the pandemic shutting us all down and being so connected on our phones. And that's why it really kind of took off on social media because everyone was just so connected and so aware of what was going on at immediate time, which is what social media can do. I think it's great that it is now in the public's mind. But I mean, if you spoke to an artist of color, like they've been battling this battle, like you said about, you know, artists with disabilities, they've been battling this battle forever. And now the fact of the matter is that if people are 
understanding and people are acknowledging it, well, what are they going to do to reconcile? Does that mean that a person of color is now still a checkbox for your stage because now you have to be inclusive? No, it's, you know, it's about equity over equality and it's about awarding those, those equal opportunities, but also just, you know, recognizing that this is a battle that has been happening. It's just that people are aware of it now and people are understanding it now and that they need to, you know, be mindful of, you know, when asking for an Indigenous artist's perspective or asking an artist of colour to be a part of their show, what has the colonial institutions done to them and how have they treated them and how are you going to reprimand that and make it better? Yeah. One thing we've talked about a bit at Symphony Nova Scotia with, with the audience but also within closed meetings is this thing that there's this tremendous energy to be programming uh, differently not entirely mm-hmm. differently, but and as as per the title of this series, mm-hmm. there's enough room. We're not you don't have to throw Beethoven out to allow um, Florence Price in. You know they can sit really happily next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the the issues we face with classical music in particular is that the point at which concerts become commodified and it's a, a something that you purchase, you you pay to buy access to it then you get a slight sense of therefore you need to perform for me something that you know everyone has a different thing they want to get out of it it's a transaction and I'm curious to see for myself how our audience and therefore our marketing team and the ticketing department can navigate this thing of yet we're going to have another crack at programming all this stuff but it means you need to buy the tickets it doesn't work if you don't come. And what I'm curious to know is at Prismatic, you talked about that that wonderful thing that there was a point at which the founder, it stopped being about what he needed to do for himself and he realised there was a need from others, which is something I've been thinking about recently in terms of the tech world. Actually, a lot of apps and software started off as a personal project to fill a personal need and all of a sudden there were people getting in touch saying, I need it too. So when when Prismatic started to grow and have an established audience wanting more, was it a sort of a settler audience or was it an Indigenous and BIPOC audience? Was it right. who who was buying the tickets to make sure that the festival could grow? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, so for example, our, our motto is art for everyone. So we never, you know, try to silo artists within their own communities and market the shows to that. For us, it's art is for everyone. The most important thing is people who want to see a really good theater show come to this show that we're bringing you. People who want to see a musician or you want to hear music you've never heard before, come to this show. So I think the the biggest thing for for us, and I think that would be pertinent um, in relation to your question and what you're looking to do as well, is the organization has to build that trust within their audiences. And we have a really, like we call our audience our prismatic family. Our volunteers have been volunteering with us for 15 years. They always want to come back. It's, it's really... Um, and and it, on the greater level of reconciliation, it's really important about that relationship building. So for us, you know, we never hide who we are, what we're trying to do. This is who we are. It's on the page blank. You know what we're doing. Trust us. Trust and come and see that this is going to be a good show. Or maybe you won't like it and it evoked a bunch of emotion in you. Whatever it is, that's what art is for. That's what it does. Um, but we, you know, really built that trust with 
other organizations, our audience members that we've had, um, with our funders, with anyone. It's we're very transparent about who we are and what our intention is. And, you know, we believe in, in what we're doing and we want you to believe us too. And the people that will, will do that. And I think, for example, um, we actually did work with Symphony Nova Scotia a couple of years ago and we had Chris Dirksen, who is an incredible indigenous cellist and composer. And, you know, she was classically trained on the cello and her sound is very much like electronic looping, um, a very electronic sound with the cello. But she has kind of, you know, the Western classical technique and background. But then she composed music and composed her new album. It was called Indigenous Pow Wow. And it was all about the music and the traditional sounds that she's heard growing up. And she merged those two worlds together. And uh, we had the pleasure of having members of Symphony Nova Scotia, you know, learn her music and play with her on the stage. And that was like just this beautiful blend of both worlds. And, and I think that's something that people really think about in the classical canon is we are very well versed in the westernized classical canon. But there's an Eastern classical canon as well. And when you talk about classical music, we're so streamlined into one type of classical music. And it's very much the colonized version of classical music. But there is so much other classical music out there from people with different backgrounds, different countries. There's different instruments. Um, so I think it's rather than having kind of that either or mentality where one reigns as the supreme and the other doesn't have a place, it's time to open up and accept and coexist and you know there is room for all there is room for everything and, you know I was speaking actually just earlier today with Dinequa Jaratne um, who's been in the prismatic family forever he's been on our stage a lot and we were kind of having that conversation about it and he's like you know classical music is a blank slate and it's a place for you to tell your story and he's like I love Mozart like I you know grew up in the British system for education and and that was you know I heard Mozart and I wanted to learn how to play that music but then I also started bringing you know my background into it and I love the sound of Indian music and Sri Lankan music and, and bringing those worlds together but he is so happy that he has that technical training um, you know from one canon but it doesn't mean that that you have to be siloed into that I think there is you know that that openness and existing and you know creating sounds like there's Jeremy Dutcher now who's really famous and everyone is absolutely you know enjoying hearing his music he's classically trained on the piano here at Dalhousie University yet he blends voices and sounds from his ancestors to make his music so I think there's you know a world of of being able to just be open and, and learning about coexisting we had actually had a piece by Chris Dirksen planned for this season that, that, oh that my heart a, I no. know I know it was like oh it was gonna be such a cool program yeah she's incredible yeah. she's she's so it's unbelievably talented anyone who's watching just like google Chris Dirksen right now yeah definitely it's worth it <laughs> and 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 that we will be reprogramming that one That's, great it's gonna be a nice project for for next yeah. season fingers crossed if we'll, if the world's ready for for such things mm -hmm. who knows so there's there's something interesting that comes up in that and this is I don't think either of us have the answer for this, but mm -hmm. I've, I've heard people say that the word um, programming as opposed to curating, and you use mm -hmm. the word curation, and I know that the, the cynicists in the world would say, oh, that's just such a woke kind of um, millennial <laughs> term, Which, but actually all you're doing is programming. But I actually genuinely think there is a difference between the two, and I'm, I'm interested to know whether you use the word curation intentionally to differentiate it from programming or if you see those as different tasks or 
I personally see them as different tasks. I mean, I like the positivity that surrounds the word curating a little bit more, and I think it leaves it open for the artist's input. And that's something that's really important for us at Prismatic is we are, our two main principles and and how we govern our organization is one is the artist and the other is race politics. And those are the two main factors that kind of make us who we are. So I think for us, you know, um, whether it's commissioning a work or working with emerging artists or presenting professional artists, I think what matters to us is hearing what the artist needs, what are their desires, what can we do for them? And I think in a process of curation, to me, that means that those conversations are being had rather than me saying, oh, I've gone to this showcase like this, programming you in my next festival, here's your offer. I think there's so much more to it than me. And I, I think everyone can interpret the words differently. I think that's maybe just the way I see it. But for me, that that curation process is relationship building. It's getting to know the artist. It's asking the artist what they need. It's working together um, to to have that common goal of the presentation or workshop or masterclass or whatever it is. I mean, it almost sounds like co-creation, a co-curation yeah. rather than co-creation. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, if there is a new a work that they have that's already ready to go, I mean, yes, we will program that, but, you know, we... I don't know. I've never really used, I don't think we've ever really used the word programming. I think because for us it's always been about the collective. Oh, I find this fascinating because as you were saying, I was thinking... Oh God, I hadn't even thought about the what the artist needs out of it because that just does not come into it with classical music. The primacy right. of the score and the piece and the composer is all, and we we all are subject to it. And mm. in particular, the the kind of the the canonic esteem of the composer and reverence and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and if there's something that sets classical music and perhaps ballet as opposed to dance, apart from the other performing art forms, it's that there is so little improvisation and input of the artist into it. We, we, mm. we recreate. We don't create. We recreate. And the more recreative it is, i.e. the closer to the text, the better we thought we've done it. Do you know what I mean? The less yeah. of ourself that's in it, actually, the better we've done our job. Right. Um, so I wonder if that's why traditionally in, in classical music it has been more a, a sense of programming, mm-hmm. i.e. there is a, a model which should be followed because the canonic history is such a crucial part of the value system. I mean, that makes sense even just, you know, I, I didn't know that specifically. Um, but I think that does make sense because it is a program. It is, you know, it's Mozart's sonata or it is what it is. It is a program that is being done in a very specific way. And kind of like you were saying, going back to, you know, your audiences and the tickets, like they're buying the program. They're buying exactly what they know they're going to get and they're expecting it in a certain way. And that's the way it's going to be. And that's what they're looking for. I mean, I think there's a place for all all art and all art forms for sure, but I think that might be what our differentiation is in the words of programming and curation for sure. Yeah, for me, curation I think is a far healthier concept and I, I hope that's what we can move towards in classical music where it's more, for, which for me as a musician would feel like I'm going to create a conceptual room for you with a whole lot of toys in it and they're they're called bits of music, (laughs) and you can come into this conceptual room for an hour and a half and play with the toys. And some of them might be fun to play with, some of them might be a bit scary, some of them you might like, whatever, and then you leave the the little conceptual room. So curation, I suppose, for me, I've always thought about it as in terms of the audience's experience. 
within it. So it's creating a um, an environment for an audience to to have an experience in, rather than making a product to sell to them. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. I like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. My husband's a conductor as well, and he he does a lot more avant-garde new music um, than I do. But we've we had this discussion near the beginning of lockdown of what happens if you just don't advertise what the works will be in a classical mm-hmm. program. What, how would an audience respond? Would they be freaked out by it? Would they be intrigued? Would they be titillated? Would they want to then send you an, an email and go, well, if you haven't chosen yet, I'd really love you to do blah, blah, blah. You know, could, you, <laughs> yeah. could it actually become the a discussion? They're going to do it now. <laughs> which I think is yeah. a fascinating thought. Yeah. I mean, there are myriad um, practical considerations that make that difficult. But I think it's interesting maybe for audience members to think about what if I didn't come to a concert because I have a sense of the beauty or esteem or famousness of the of the person playing it, if it's a concerto, mm-hmm. or the person who wrote it? What if it is just turn up and I'm going to play you something in D major and I'm not going to tell you what it is, mm-hmm. but I can promise you it will be in D major <laughs> and yeah. just leave it at that, you know. Totally. In terms of prismatic, have you played around with – improvisation any sort of improv sort of things or is or are they generally quite set pieces that um, you do? there so we we program there you go here you go <laughs> program <laughs> we we put together our artistic vision for our festival um about a year in advance so a lot of what we present are works that are created by artists so I kind of touched on it earlier um but we either present fully actualized works by the artist and they bring it to us and say, this is our work, this is what we need, this is what we want to do, and, and they perform it. Or sometimes there are times where we commission work, so we work with different artists to help them realize and actualize their vision. So, for example, um, the Mariachi Ghost from Winnipeg, they're an incredible band, uh, musicians. They wanted to do a rock opera, and they, they're, you know, they're musicians. This was kind of outside of their scope, and knowing that Shaheen, you know, works in theater and has all of that, you know, he kind of mentored um, the band, and they actually did a workshop presentation at one year at Prismatic, and then the next year they did their full presentation of it, and you could see kind of how it morphed and changed. And, you know, the audiences here, they had come previous to the festival, so they kind of had a little bit of a following here. And the audiences came to the workshop presentation and immediately were like, oh, this was awesome. This is our feedback. This is what we want to say. Like, it was too long or it was too short or this, 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 this. And they wanted to be involved in the process. And I don't, I think we had maybe just launched the tickets the following year and it was completely sold out, which was super exciting. But yeah, I think, you know, for us, it's very much either taking a realized work, helping commission works and creating new works, or even giving that stage, the main stage, um, to emerging artists that, that haven't had an opportunity to do that. I think I'm going on a tangent a little bit. No, 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 this is brilliant. This is wonderful. I love okay. that idea. And this actually goes back to something you said earlier um, about it could be that an audience member comes along and doesn't enjoy it. And yeah. it's such, it's, as an audience, often that's something we deprive ourselves of is the opportunity to go and hear stuff we think is not very good or that we don't enjoy or that we found a bit scary to listen to or that we preferred the second piece. All of these are valid responses. I did a, a concert in Berlin once um, in this amazing venue, the, the Piano Salon, which has just got all these carcasses of dead grand pianos all around the room. It's the most amazing space. And I did a concert of 
pieces by New Zealand composers of various levels of experience. And there was this guy, I didn't even know him, he just got in touch through social media or something. And he, he came along, he was German, and he came after, up afterwards. I don't think he'd ever heard any contemporary music. And he said, that was awful. That was terrible. When's the next concert? I will buy a ticket. <laughs> and for him, the fact, that he had, <laughs> the fact that it had incensed him was enough to make yeah. him want to come back and be incensed again because it was a reaction. It was a, an engagement with the piece. It didn't, he didn't have to find it nice, you know. Um, no. it, was, it was tremendous. It was such a great response. Well, and I think that's really important too. I mean, art obviously, you know, is meant to be enjoyed, but it's also there to elicit emotion. And I think that's something that, you know, we find is really important when we're putting on our performances is we actually have a lot of artists talkbacks right after the show. And that's something that we've kind of implemented almost as a standard to the majority of our shows, especially theater and dance where there's the opportunity for that. And, you know, audience members don't have to stay, they can leave or they can stay. And, and it just gives that opportunity to actually talk to the artist and, and reflect on it. And especially for us, you know, when we have different artists of color, indigenous artists that are a lot of their artists shaped by who they are, their culture, their traditions. And, and there is that need for knowledge sharing um, between the artists and the audience. So we've found that that has been really important and, and helpful. And, you know, I remember we had Santi Smith's um, The Mush Hole. It debuted at Prismatic and we had, um, and it, it's about, residential schools and it's very tough content like there's nothing it's beautiful she's one of the most incredibly talented dancers I've ever seen on a stage so it was incredibly beautiful to watch but the actual themes and what was happening and it was very very hard but this is a way to get their story of what has happened onto a stage and we had invited a bunch of schools from all around the province um, high school students and I remember after we had the artist talk back, and a lot of the artists within that show were also under 18, like they were youth themselves because they were representing students. And I remember, you know, one, one girl had put her hand up and asked the question to one of the, the dancers and said, so what was happening there? And he, he talked about it and I'll throw a trigger warning out there for anyone. If they're watching right now, skip ahead a few seconds. Um, if any sort of abuse triggers you, please. And, and he answered and he said, oh, I was being molested in that and you should the girl her face she was just like oh like mortified that she asked that question and then you know it was silence and he was talking about it and and you know explaining this is the history of my family members this is what they've gone through and you know the, there was such a silence in the room it was deafening the silence in the room within 30 45 seconds you saw three or four other hands going up and they they wanted to talk and they wanted to learn more and you know that that kind of barrier had been broken almost by accident seemingly I think she was just asking what was happening there because she really you know enjoyed the movements or whatever it may have been and that sparked a conversation that I think lasted almost an hour of just the artist being able to talk and say this is our art form this is what we're doing and you know I can guarantee people leaving that room they it wasn't just a, oh, we got to sew a dance show and skipped our class. There was a lot of emotions that I assure you was brewing. And there was a lot of, you know, thoughts and feelings. And maybe people even went home to check out their history books and, and learn about it. So there's, you know, there's so much more impact that art can have on on someone. And I think that's really important, you know, as an audience member to, to understand, like, you don't have to like it, but you can learn about it. You can hear it. You can experience new things. Um, I think that's really important. And actually, as you're talking about that, I, I thought of my experiences in opera 
And we sort of have the reverse thing where blatantly a lot of opera is, again, a trigger warning here, is about mm. sexual abuse, abuse of power, rape, murder, domestic abuse. And blatantly, I mean, you cannot, any intelligent person of the 21st century cannot read these synopses and not admit that it is. But of course, it's been couched in this beautiful, romantic, sexualized, often centralized at least, music. And for 100, 150 years, been designed, directed, and conducted by a demographic of people who are statistically far less likely to be victims of those kind of abuses. So, it, say you think about Carmen, for instance, as an opera. I mean, it 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 is such an opera, such a story for our times. It's a it's about refugees. It's about illegal immigration. It's about sex work. It's about um, stalking. It's you know. <laughs> There is no love in there. There's not a single romantic scene. It's, it's about abuse. But, of course, we haven't grown up thinking of it that way, and it has these soaring romantic maladies. So people go, sit, we sit watching it thinking we're watching a love story, and it kind of normalises the themes in it because we don't frame it honestly. Same with um, Rigoletto, same thing. And... Often this comes up when we talk about repertoire and enough room for for for, great, for broadening our repertoire, for for instance. Um, should we be throwing these works out? And I, I've I've grappled with this. I mean, there's a lot of opera repertoire. I actually just don't particularly like the music of. I, I can't stand the Italian bel canto, for instance. But I think actually there are stories in there that are still important to tell because they've not necessarily been told well or intelligently or critically so part of broadening the way we do it is also broadening the way we say it and and say as a, a female conductor I mean conducting is one of those jobs I think there are three percent of conductors are women and if you tr if you want to look at people of color that's going to be smaller still particularly women um it's pretty scary we're, we're very much stuck in the 17th century so Yay, Symphony Nova Scotia. But I've reflected on this a lot, and I talked to Daniel Bartholomew Poiser about this as well. Just by putting someone on the podium or in a position of leadership in the arts, you get a slightly different opinion on something. And it won't be that I conduct Beethoven differently because I'm a woman or anything like that, but it could be differences in the way we, say, enact leadership in, in the rehearsal room. It could be as simple as that, that it's just... Different people from different backgrounds bring a different way of leadership, a different way of relating to the audience, a different way of curating or programming. Um, so when we talk about there being enough room and broadening our musical or artistic palette, it can actually be about taking a second look at what we've been taking for granted for 50 years, can't it? I mean, do you ever have repertoire with a capital R at... Um, at Prismatic, does anyone ever come and perform, say, Shakespeare? Uh, no, because a big part of our presenting is presenting new works um, or new creations. So we don't, you know, we haven't staged. And I know when we were kind of talking offline, you were like, what's your most exciting thing that you want to have at your venue? If you had no, no budget, your venue of your dreams, what would you do? And I was like... I would do what we did this year and I'd do what I want to do next year. And that's, you know, that cross collaboration and, and creating new work. Cause I think that's really important. And, you know, obviously that's, that's our mandate and who we are and what we're doing, but just giving the, 
giving the resources and, and the ability for artists to create their own new works. I think that's a big differentiation probably from us in the classical world or what, you know, a symphony does is we program new works of art. Now I can't ask you that question on camera. <laughs> oh, you I know your oh, answer. Sorry. Gonna be. <laughs> I mean, this answer was like kind of anyway, so you can ask it. <laughs> I mean, is there a dream project to produce for you that you think, oh, if I had the budget, I'd get that artist in and team them with this person and set up a collaboration? Absolutely. You know, I I was like really thinking it over uh, of what what would my dream project be, and you know, I kind of got a little bit of a taste of it this year with our. Um, Project Shifting Verse, which was in partnership with the National Arts Center for the Grand Acts of Theater. And it was, you know, in response to COVID. And, you know, it was create a work. What do you want to do? And, and for me, the most important thing was everyone has, you know, artists, um, rather than being a blanket statement, but the artists that, you know, we work with or the artists that we know are so talented and they have so many ideas. And it's just about, you know, providing. And, and that is who, who we are, again, is what we do is those, you know, artists from marginalized communities that don't have the ability or the options or the resources to do it, um, the ideas that are brewing there. And, and if they had the opportunities to actually create the work that they want to create, for me, like, that would be the, the biggest project I could ever put together. And, and we kind of, you know, did that in, in a different way. Um, this year we had representation from all Atlantic provinces to put together this grand act of theater. And I had a choreographer from Nova Scotia and I had a musician from Nova Scotia and some artists from Newfoundland and our projections were from PEI. And, and we just got to bring together all of these people. And, you know, I, I had this idea, this is, you know, the theme of what I want it to look like, but I'm not going to be like, okay, you have to do exactly this. And this is what you're doing. It was like, this is the world that I'm creating what does the dance movement look like for it? And that creation was created. And then the script was created and the music is created and, and putting it all together. I mean, whew, I'm still reeling from it. <laughs> it was well, incredible. I so I just want to keep doing that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like one of those, you know, the, the, the sum total is, is greater than the sum of its parts. If you, if you know what I mean, yeah. actually, by, by bringing yeah. all of those different ingredients together and giving them freedom to, interact as they happen to, to then actually what what comes out is better than anything we could micromanage exactly which is a which is another very typical side of classical music is micromanagement so i have two final questions the first sure. is more of a provocation and that's well just something that i've found interesting during lockdown is that two dichotomies have been upset number one the moment lockdown happened or very shortly after all of a sudden this sliding scale between professional and amateur was obliterated it was just people creating online there was just no difference between a 15 year old videoing herself practicing ballet in her kitchen and someone from the royal ballet they had the same number of viewers they had the same kind of content and it had the same value in terms of what it was doing and what it was saying but the other thing that I think has really has come later during lockdown is our attention turning inward and closer to home and a, a renewed sense of value in terms of local artists. And this has been fascinating for me as a New Zealander because the New Zealand orchestras are very traditional and they, of course, have these concert programs that they have to get foreign conductors in to conduct because none of us can afford to stay in New Zealand. We, there won't be enough work to sustain us. And also it's good to travel and, and broaden your perspectives. But it meant that, you know, they're sitting there with 
no COVID basically. So a fully functioning concert season, but no conductors. So they've been having to bring all of these New Zealanders that perhaps they wouldn't normally hire back into the country. And the same with soloists. They're using players from within their own orchestras to play the concerto instead of getting famous people from Europe or North America. Um, so it's a, a shift of values in that way, born of necessity, but actually I think it has sparked something genuinely like, oh, why weren't, why weren't we doing this all along <laughs> for some of them? And it, we can start to see the same thing here happening in the UK for very practical reasons, that you just can't bank on the fact that someone from mainland Europe can come in without having to quarantine. So there are practical reasons for it happening here as well. But in terms of, say, a, a community like Nova Scotia, or even if we look more at the whole Atlantic bubble, what constitutes local now is a completely different concept than what it did, say, 50 or 80 years ago when a lot of these organisations were setting up. So local artists might come from the most broad group of diasporas and, and backgrounds and... Um, I don't know. Just tell me what you think about it. Is it, what what yeah. is your sense of local people, local artists, and and who do we think of as a local audience as well? Because mm -hmm. that's a very different thing in a globe globalized world, isn't it? For sure. I think the main thing to articulate first with that is for us here in Canada on Turtle Island, the indigenous people are the original people and caretakers of the land, and. It is really important for us in this time right now of reconciliation to give them back their identity. So as soon as you said the word local, like that was the immediate thought that came to my mind. But in saying that as well, Canada is also one of the most multicultural countries in the world and, and you know, has a very wide range of people. So for me, I'm first generation Canadian. I'm Canadian. I now live in Halifax. I'm local to Halifax. My parents are from Africa. My great-great-grandparents are from India. So, like, where does that, you know, that this is like, we're going to unpack some things here. <laughs> but, that, but that is, you know, the, the, the question, especially for um, Indigenous artists, which we kind of touched on that, and artists of color, which is what I'm going with now, is where do you belong? What, what, is, what is your home? Where do you belong? What is, you know, what is your identity? What is your city's identity? What is your province identity? And I think traditionally, you know, on the East Coast, specifically of Canada, it, the identity has always kind of been, you know, like the Gaelic and the Celtic identity. And, and people who think of the East Coast of Canada, you know, will think of, you know, our industries like fishing and things like that and seafood and all those things. But if you also look, we also have Africville and one of the oldest black communities, in Canada here on the East Coast as well, without getting too political with that to kind of bring it back to the arts. Um, I think local, for me personally, would be where you are located and, and what what do you identify as home? Like I would say I'm a Haligonian. I'm when I when I think local, like Halifax is my local. You know, I, I've never been to Africa, so that wouldn't be my local, even though that is a big sh part of who I am and the languages I've learned and, and my history. I would say my my thought for local is is the land. That would be where I would kind of put that two and two together. It would be for the artists, for the for the audiences, for the personnel. It, it's the land that you consider home, and it's the land that you are on. 
And that ties into what you were yeah. saying in terms of the First Nations people being the first caretakers of this land, the first stewards mm-hmm. of it. Um, so mm-hmm. not, never is the land owned by anyone. It's 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 yeah. just taken care of and shepherded and stewarded, which helps us frame that, I think. And also when we think about all of these different people with all of these, whether someone's a first-generation Haligonian or third-generation or come up through the Indigenous community, it's this which stories we have licensed to tell as being our stories as a local person. And actually, I, I had a really cool conversation with Rebecca Thomas about this, who was the Poet Laureate in Halifax, and we, we commissioned a piece from her, and Loris Groy last year, which was awesome. And we had a lot of traditional concert goers who were... A, vocally said they were quite nervous about coming because they thought they were going to get told off sure. for being white and for being settlers. And, <laughs> and she's amazing with her oh, work. She's yeah. a goddess. Yeah. She's an absolute she's goddess. She's a friend of Prismatic. So we cool. have her all the time. <laughs> she's she's one of those people you meet and you just think, oh, if I had even a fraction as much coolness in me that you Totally. Do. I she's, agree. She's one of the coolest people I've ever met. She's so cool. But um, <laughs> we had this great discussion about, well, whose story is it? Mm-hmm. And she was like, but it's a shared story. It's not just an indigenous story. It's also a settler community story. And mm-hmm. it's a, a recent immigrant story. And it, we're all part of the the understanding and the retelling and the writing and the, the future shaping of that story. And that's the bit that I think is so important to get hold of is that we're all connected to that story. And we're all yeah. witnesses to it and writers of it and enactors of it and, and shapers of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Absolutely. so to finish off with, because as you know, you've, you've probably worked out, I think classical music has an awful lot to learn from other <laughs> art forms and other people. I love it and I love what we do and I love my colleagues mm-hmm. and I love our audience members, but we are very backward looking and I mean that historically. We're, we're sort of teleological in a way. We're constantly referring back to the past and um and our values are built on the past the values of the past and we we've carried them forward and increasingly for classical performers all over the world that's becoming a a real and audience members i think and board members um, as boards become a little more uh, open and interesting and populated by (laughs) a broader cross-section of society um it's it's a set of values that it does come under question a little bit so for you, not only as artistic director of a festival that is blatantly open and about expansion of people and ideas and representation, but also as someone who deals with multidisciplinary stuff, what nuggets of advice could you give, if, if you could help us in the classical music community, what, what little nuggets of advice would you have for us? Oh, that's a big one. Um, I think, I mean, the the most, I guess, obvious one that I could kind of put out there is have an open mind, which obviously you've kind of touched on. I think also respecting that, you know, like there are some guiding principles from the past that are really important that I think can shape, you know, who you are and what your canon is or what, you know, what the whole classical music world is as a whole. Um, but it's understanding, it's recognizing, and it's being open to move forward. And I think for, for us, when I've talked to any 
um, artists of color or musicians particularly that are in the classical world, the one thing that kind of comes up is there's always plenty of barriers, um, whether that's, you know, just like comments or faints dismissals in the place that you're working or if there's racism in the workplace um, or just fully being shut out and not having those opportunities. I think it's really important that to, to understand that, you know, classical music is a blank canvas for you to tell your story, just like every other piece of music is. And if there are stories that have been told in the past that are continuing to be told, I think that's great and I think that's important for sure. But it's just having that open mind and being able to let that 12-year-old kid who heard Mozart and was like, I want to be a classical pianist, and then is also from an indigenous community in Nova Scotia and wants to bring, you know, some of those sounds into it to merge the worlds together. And I think, you know, I kind of touched on it before, but I think just learning how to coexist, learning how to open your mind and have recognition of what have, has been some of the traumas from the past that you need to leave behind in the past and not bring forward, what are some of the beautiful things from the past that you want to bring forward, and what now can we do, can we say, can we learn to move forward. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you like, so That came much. out well. <laughs> I was like, it was fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I 100% concur. Uh, <laughs> Rice, it's been so nice to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I do hope that, well, first of all, that Prismatic will continue to flourish and expand and release its joyousness into, into the community. <laughs> and I can't wait to actually be there for long enough to come and, and see some stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for awesome. tuning in and listening to us talking around these topics. I hope you found it interesting. I hope it's been provocative. I hope it's given you food for thought. If you have any responses, any ideas, any requests, any questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch. There will be uh, details at the end of this video so that so that you have a way of getting in touch with us and letting us know what you've thought and what you'd like us to talk about maybe in future uh, videos as well so thank you for joining us and thank you so much Raisa again it's been great chatting to you thank you